October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Avenus History Podcast, episode 26, Shoe Leather. Last time, we talked about James White's increasing troubles as his health continued to decline. He seemed to have an argument with just about every leader in the church at one point or another in the 70s as well. James's strokes seemed to disrupt the balance of his character, as it still does in many people today, and caused him to favor the downsides of his personality. And while he fought hard against this, trying to slow down, trying to pace himself, trying to let go of the reins of the church, it didn't always go so well. And just as he seemed to be improving, just as he seemed to be getting a grasp on things, boom, James White died. And after leaving you on that cliff in the last episode, this is how James White's week played out. On Monday, he fell ill with what Ellen White called a severe chill, and when Kellogg took his temperature, it was 103 degrees. So Kellogg transferred him to the sanitarium there in Battle Creek, And by Friday of that week, Ellen took one look at James and knew that he wasn't going to make it. She told James as much, but he didn't seem surprised. She asked him if Jesus was precious to him, and he whispered, yes, oh yes. Then she asked him, have you no desire to live? And he responded, no. Ellen prayed for him. Jesus loves you, she told him. Yes, yes, James replied. A thought occurred to Ellen that maybe he wasn't fully aware of what was going on around him, that he didn't understand her at all. So she asked him if he could name his family members in the room, and he pointed to Ellen, said her name, and he pointed to Edson and said his name. Kellogg worked tirelessly to heal James, whatever their personal differences might have been before, but it was of no use. James White passed away around 5 o'clock on Sabbath evening. James and Ellen had constantly battled illness over the decades, and it had come and gone. They were veterans. They were battle-hardened. There had hardly been a year that one of them didn't become seriously ill. Actually, while James lay dying, Ellen herself was bedridden. She was only well enough to go see him on that Friday, and so this cycle of sickness and health, while not desensitizing them, perhaps caught everyone off guard. This sort of thing happened. James gets sick. Ellen gets sick. James has been battling the effect of these strokes for some 15 years now, and this time is like every other time, except that it wasn't. Ellen White explained that last week to the church. She said, At times I felt that I could not have my husband die, but these words seemed to be impressed on my mind, Be still and know that I am God. I keenly feel my loss, but I dare not give up myself to useless grief. This would not bring back my husband, and I am not so selfish as to wish, if I could, to bring him from his peaceful slumber to engage again in the battles of life. Like a tired warrior, he has lain down to sleep. I will look with pleasure upon his resting place. The best way in which I and my children can honor the memory of him who has fallen is to take the work where he left it and in the strength of Jesus carry it forward to completion. End quote. Ellen White wrote that about a month after James died. Noticed her emotional and spiritual maturity in saying those words. 
She has remarkable perspective so soon after losing her teammate and best friend. I would prefer him with me, she says. Of course. But she's not just thinking of herself in her time of grief. She's thinking of what's best for James, the man who had struggled for nearly two decades with strokes, constantly fighting to stay healthy, to stay balanced in his temperament. Now his struggle was over. He was at peace. Seventh-day Adventists latch on to that biblical metaphor of death as a sleep. Adventists don't believe you go to heaven or hell when you die. You simply wait for the second coming. And for other Christians who believe that their loved ones are in heaven playing golf with Moses, this can seem like a bit of a letdown. But I think Ellen White shows us the great solace the sleep metaphor can bring when we talk about death. James was a warrior, she said, who fought the many battles of life. She had always wanted him to slow down. He deserved rest, and now he had it. That's why she can say, I will look with pleasure upon his resting place, because she knew how hard he worked, worked for his family, worked for his church. And so why think of him off somewhere in heaven doing something? There was something just, something beautiful about the thought of James White finally resting. Let him rest. Don't disturb him. He earned it. Rest is a big theme in Adventist theology, from the belief that we sleep in the ground at death to the idea of Sabbath. For so many reasons, then, James only had moments of rest while he lived. So why should he be denied rest and death simply because his church and his family want him back? If Ellen was content that James had rest from his hard life, leaders in the church were not. Her counsel to them was the same medicine she had taken herself. Quote, While my husband was laying in his coffin, our good brethren came to me and urged that we pray that he be raised to life. I told them, no, no. While living, he had done the work that should have been shared by two or three men, and now he was at rest. Why call him back to life to endure again that through which he has passed? End quote. Despite her maturity and how she handled this, it was still a hard year for Ellen. Twenty-five years after James's death, Ellen wrote to a friend who had lost her husband. And Ellen actually spent most of the letter talking about her own loss. This is, this is what she said. Quote, For a year after James's death, I could not endure the thought that I was alone. My husband and I had stood side by side in our ministerial work, and for a year after his death, I could not endure the thought that I was left alone, alone, to carry the responsibilities that in the past he and I had carried together. During that year, I did not recover, but came near dying. End quote. From the very beginning, James and Ellen's marriage was dominated by the idea that they were teammates. For goodness sakes, they agreed to get married in the first place because they were both speaking at churches and thought it looked bad if they traveled together without being married. They had each other's back. They were both committed to a cause greater than themselves. It united them, even when they personally disagreed. Even in their worst arguments, they would each take different fields to work in. One would go east, one would go west. The effect was that even more work for the church would get done when they fought. This doesn't mean that they didn't love each other, or that there was nothing romantic, or that they were nothing more than teammates. It just means that their bond to each other was exceptionally strong, 
because they saw their marriage itself as a mission. What do you do without your wingman? Evidently, you go on. Ellen told the woman that those years since James's death had been the most productive years of her life. I have refused to fail or become discouraged, Ellen White wrote. She said that she received no special vision from God that James would be in heaven. She said she didn't need such a vision. I have not one particle of doubt, she said, regarding my husband's preparedness to lay off the armor. He was, she would say, the greatest man who ever trod shoe leather. The funeral was held in the Dime Tabernacle on August 13, 1881, a week after he had died. The problem, as we talked about last time, was that Avenist leaders were scattered all over America and Europe, and it probably took about five days for Willie White to return from California. James had two brothers also that needed to be called. One was a Methodist elder, and the other was a Baptist pastor. Ellen was almost insulted when the Methodist elder brother arrived the day before the funeral. He found Ellen still sick, laying in bed. He muttered something about how feeble she looked and must have added a little too much condescending pity in his voice as he told her, A trying ordeal is before you in the funeral services of the morrow. God help you, my dear sister. God help you on this occasion. Well, Ellen replied rather flatly, You do not know me? The more trying the situation, the more fortitude I possess. I serve God not impulsively, but intelligently. I am a Christian. Undue grief is displeasing to God. I take up my appointed cross and will follow the Lord fully. I will not complain or murmur at the providence of God. Jesus is my Savior. He lives. He will never leave me or forsake me. So yeah, don't mess with that woman. The next day, 2,500 people showed up at the church. Uriah Smith gave the sermon, and he recounted James's role in building this thing called the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Uriah said what everyone who knew James knew perfectly well. He was cool under pressure. He didn't go to extremes. He was decisive. He never gave up. Uriah actually said that the word fail was not in his vocabulary. He was always planning for the future and that he had strong friendships. Now that last one may seem strange since James had been straining those friendships the last few years. But we shouldn't think too much of James's struggles. I mean, surely his friends slowly began to understand the strain that he was under. And when it was weighed against James's mountain of work and generosity toward all of them in the past few decades, everyone knew that James White was the real deal and that none of them would be there without him. When Uriah was done, Everyone was surprised to see Ellen standing. She wasn't even sure she could get up and speak herself, but there she was. And even while she eulogized James, she was still processing her own grief. What she said is a bit long, but it's worth hearing. Quote, How long I shall fight the battles of life alone, I cannot say. But there is one thing that I will say to you, and that is that when I saw my husband breathe his last, I felt that Jesus was more precious to me than he had ever been in any previous hour of my life. When I stood by my firstborn and closed his eyes in death, I could say, The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I felt that I had a comforter in Jesus Christ. 
And when my little one was torn from my arms, and I could no longer see its little head upon the pillow by my side, then I could say, The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And now upon whose large affections I have leaned, with whom I have labored, and we have been united in labor for thirty-six years, is taken away. But I can lay my hands upon his eyes and say, I commit my treasure to thee until the morning of the resurrection. When you take a step back and look at James and Ellen's journey together, you can't help but respect this woman. This woman who was so driven, who traveled up and down the country, literally risking her life just as her husband did. This woman who laid two of her four children in the ground. This woman who spent nearly every dollar on building this church for nearly 40 years. And it's in this moment of her deepest wound that she looks around and reminds the church that it's all been worth it. Ellen White was no spiritual sissy. When she told James's brother that the harder the situation is, the more fortitude she possesses, she wasn't boasting, she wasn't kidding when she said, I serve God intelligently, not impulsively. She didn't immediately question the existence of God when tragedy struck. She was spiritually and emotionally mature. And when you realize this, you begin to realize what drew thousands upon thousands to the Adventist church. James and Ellen put in 110%, and that filled others with confidence. They were running as fast as they could. And if you wanted to join them, what do you do? What are you going to do? Just walk? No, you're going to try to keep up. They were setting the pace for the church, putting everything they had into it. And Ellen White just lost her running partner. She missed him, but she wasn't going to slow down. Nothing would have disappointed James more than if she had slowed down. Quite the opposite, as she said. She accomplished more after his death than she did before. She traveled more. She wrote more. She became more. After the service, some 95 carriages waited outside the church to head to Oak Hill Cemetery in Battle Creek. This was no official Adventist cemetery, but it is a pretty remarkable one. James, his parents, and James and Ellen's two kids were buried there, of course. Kellogg would be buried there someday. Even Kellogg's rival in the cereal industry, C.W. Post, the guy who invented grape nuts, is buried there too. And so is Sojourner Truth, the former slave and campaigner for women's rights. All of those people are buried there in the same cemetery because of James White. You notice another thing when you look back over James's life. The first 20 years were pure kinetic energy. He was printing here and preaching there. The church was being shaped by his energy and vision. But during the last 20 years of his life, he was organizing the church to outlast him. Now, part of that speaks to his vision. But as we know so well, James wasn't the type of modern leader looking to raise a business and then wean it so it can fly on without him. No, James was made to do that by his illness. He was forced to let go and let other men get some experience being the head. You can't help but think that maybe there was an unseen hand in that, because as organized as the church was, it could still fail without James, and it might very well have failed if James's illness hadn't forced others to step up into leadership and learn how to run this thing. 
James's death, of course, was keenly felt by those leaders. In his funeral sermon, Uriah Smith noted that James White's name was woven into every single institution or program of the church. And Smith asked a really poignant question. He said, Is it any wonder that we should come to feel that in a cause which we have expected would be brief at the longest, he with whom it began and who has so long continued with it should continue to the end? What does Smith mean by that? He's saying that everyone thought this Adventist movement would be brief, that Jesus would come at some point, and no one gave a single thought that the pillar of this movement should die. They just assumed James would be with them to the end. So it just caught everyone off guard. Even George Butler, the president of the church, felt the anxiety. He basically asked, who's going to chart our course for us? Keep Battle Creek College in line and a sanitarium running well. Who's going to be in charge of the publishing association? There was no replacing James White. Not by one person, not by two people, maybe not even by ten people. There are several easy comparisons I can make, but they're both exaggerated, so please understand what I'm talking about. Hear me out. But it's kind of like when Alexander the Great died suddenly, and what happened? The empire fell to pieces. Right? He was a charismatic, highly gifted leader, and he had no one under him capable with the same skills. So when he died, the empire just falls into pieces. Or like when Jesus was suddenly taken from the disciples, and they sat there, what, staring into the sky, dumbfounded. What do we do? And of course, James White was no Alexander, and he definitely was not Jesus. But I think the effect of his departure was at least roughly analogous. It was a shock. No one felt prepared to take over, but they knew in which direction to look Ellen White. Butler wrote to the church that they would need her guidance more than ever. Except Ellen White wasn't prepared to give it yet. She needed time, so she left her sons in Battle Creek with the task of taking care of the estate while she set out for Colorado. But Colorado seemed empty without him. She wrote to Willie about a month after the funeral, quote, I find it a very different thing being in the mountains with my husband and in the mountains without him. I am fully of the opinion that my life was so entwined or interwoven with my husband's that it is impossible for me to be of any great account without him. Butler was eager for her to return to Battle Creek for the general conference session that December, but Ellen chose to winter in California. I mean, really, where would you rather spend winter? Well, in California, the believers there wanted their own school, like Battle Creek College. And why should they send all their kids to Michigan to get an Adventist education? Stephen Haskell was around and was asked what he thought. He said, That's a, it's a great idea, but they should wait a year before they start a school. Pay down some debts first. But, as Willie White would later write, California enthusiasm prevailed. The school would be built immediately, and everything seemed to fall into place. In a few months, they had a building. A few weeks after that, they had a teacher to lead this. Ellen White loved the idea. They decided to learn their lessons from Battle Creek College. They were going to have dorms this time, so their students didn't have to live all throughout town. They were going to have a good curriculum in place. Great. They were so enthusiastic, they opened the school in Healdsburg within seven months. 
The new school had 38 students. Meanwhile, back at Battle Creek College, there was no Battle Creek College. In 1882, that college was a mess. The school drifted more and more to resemble non-Christian schools, which wasn't a terrible thing, but this is supposed to be an Adventist school. Students protested policies. Large number of faculty threatened to quit. It was a mess. Even worse, Uriah Smith and his children sided with the administration publicly in the review, which tended on a more liberal, non-religious curriculum. Now, this is understandable to a certain degree, because you'll remember that Smith and his sister growing up had been educated with much the same curriculum. This bothered Ellen White. Smith reported in May of 1882 that the school year was almost over and everyone was getting along splendidly. Except no, no they weren't. Ellen wrote strong letters to Uriah to get him on the right side. Uriah, in turn, interpreted these letters as just being Ellen White's opinion, not some directive from God. And this annoyed Ellen all the more. Uriah went on defense in the review, as some of Ellen's supporters claimed that he was giving up his belief in her prophetic gift. This, of course, had been something Uriah struggled with earlier, and he pointed that out. Yes, he said, I came very near giving up on Ellen White, but I didn't. Then he added, quote, I also at one time came very near getting run over by the cars and rolled into jelly, but I didn't, and so I continued to this day, end quote. Well said, Uriah. Well said. George Butler realized that the school had drifted so far from its original purpose. No one seemed to have control of it anymore, and so he hit the reset button. Coming less than a year after James White's death, it was another blow to the invincible progress of the church. This was one of the first signs that Battle Creek might be growing stale. Even Ellen White had no desire to go back. A new promising school had been founded in Healdsburg, California, and around the time that school opened, a new school had also started in Massachusetts. Whereas Willie White went to go head up Healdsburg Academy, Goodloe Harper Bell went to South Lancaster, Massachusetts. Bell had been drowning at Battle Creek College. I mean, really, he founded that school, and no one listened to him, and it was time for him to make a clean break. Bell's South Lancaster Academy would, of course, one day become the seed for Atlantic Union College, now called Washington Adventist University. Healdsburg Academy would one day become Pacific Union College after it moved to Angwin. Two more stars in the universe of Adventist education had been formed. The church wasn't done with Battle Creek College, though. It remained closed during the 1882-1883 school year while leadership tried to figure something out. And that something was to put Walcott Hackley Little John, currently pastor of the Battle Creek Church, in charge of the school. Yes, this is the same preposterously named man we talked about two episodes ago who wanted to see more limits on James's power. He had his rough patch, but he was a good guy. And I just like to pick on him. I mean, really. But Little John's reforms were just what the college needed. Battle Creek College would be okay. It had to be. It was destined to be the flagship university for the entire denomination. As 1882 began to close, Ellen White turned toward writing. She had a special book in mind, one that would trace the history of the church from the time of the apostles to the very end of time, a book that would someday be called The Great Controversy.
Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenus History content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>